Hello, welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. It's great to see you all. Um, I want to just mention uh, a couple of things. One is, uh, first of all, uh, so thrilled about our worship team. We have such a deep bullpen. And as you're praying for Jung, our worship leader, and his recovery, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a journey. And uh, so need you to be praying and praying, praying. But my point is, isn't it wonderful to have this bullpen of worship leaders? Just You know, so many times you have a, a great starter pitcher in baseball, takes you up through the fourth or sixth inning, and then it all unravels, you know, as the relievers come in, but, but not here. And hope, hopefully you know that, that that's the way it is uh, in all that we do here at this church. It's, it's built around one person, and that's Jesus, right? And uh, so our teaching team is stellar, all that you do is stellar, and uh, we're just uh, in the Oompa Oompa Willy Wonka chocolate factory, uh, doing what God has called us to do, and all glory to Jesus. Uh, I also want to make mention of the fact that Mars Hill, we have this wonderful ministry that I started years ago, and uh, hand, hand, not be, that's not what makes it wonderful, but uh, I just thought, you know, uh, our, our culture is constantly changing, and there's challenging things both in classical apologetics and cultural apologetics where how do we defend our faith with this issue and how do we defend our faith with this issue and what do we do about this and what and so we need to be equipping you constantly and we have that ministry it's called Mars Hill it's named after Paul's encounter in Athens on Mars Hill where he's debating with the Athenians uh, and, and, and he comes through an amazing door that surprises everyone. He, he sees all of these statues to other gods, and he says to the, the sophists of the day, he says, I see that you are a very religious people. Notice the respect. He doesn't come out shooting, I hate your gods, and I'm here as a Christian to tell you everything's bad but me. He, he doesn't take that approach, but he says, you know, you're very religious people, but you have one statue named the unknown God. He says, I want to tell you about him. Brilliant. Oh my gosh. So we want to be those people that in the midst of, of culture, uh, and a culture that we celebrate everyone's freedom. We just had the 4th of July. We celebrate religious freedom. And, and I want everyone to believe what they believe freely in this country. That's paramount. But in that freedom to be able to allow people to come and discover the love of Jesus. So uh, Friday, July 12th, so that's coming up, Jay Warner Wallace uh, is speaking on God's crime scene, evidence of God's existence from biology. It's a great, great argument, a great discovery that if, if you looked at creation as a crime scene, like, whoa, does it look like it's a random uh, thing that happened? Does it look like there's no order? Does it look like there's no beauty? Does it look like just, uh, or does it look like somebody did this? And we're not talking about whether it's old or new. We're just talking about, does it, does it look like somebody committed a good crime? (laughs) 
And uh, so, what, and what would be the evidence for that? So, a uh, great, great discussion by uh, J. Warner Wallace, who actually was a, a, a prosecutor and, and uh, involved in that judicial part of the world, and he just used his skills to look at uh, different parts of creation. So that's this Friday night. This morning, we're in Psalm 63. If you're a visitor here, we're taking the summer uh, to go through the Psalms, not all of them, but picking some of the, the great ones and, uh, and using our team to teach. We have a great teaching team, uh, and I'm, I'm the lesser of, the, of the, all of the great teachers on, on this team. And I, I've chosen Psalm 63. I went back in, in my archives, and I realized I taught on it eight years ago. So, uh, but I am not repeating myself. Now, how many of you knew I taught on it eight years ago? Yeah, <laughs> I knew it. You, you, <laughs> but um, I'm, I want to take a different slant with what grabbed me this time, and it's about the thirstiness. It's about uh, your thirsty soul and my thirsty soul, and what do we do with that thirst that's in every single person? So there was a line that BJ led us through in one of the songs before the offering, and the line was this. Remember the cello was playing, everything got soft, and she said, when the night is holding on to you. Maybe it was Boston, she was the other singer. It was Boston, yeah, both beautiful voices. When the night is holding on to you, God is holding on. So in the dark night of the soul that St. John of the Cross called it in the 14th century, having been discipled by St. Teresa of Avila in Spain, he penned his book, The Dark Night of the Soul, and, and he talks about the journey that you and I have been on in different points of life where we can't, we can't see God. We somehow walked into a dark space and we feel around, and there is no light. We, we don't know what happened. Did I unplug the thriving machine? <laughs> Did I unplug the light and the goodness and the love machine? Where are you, God? Uh, it feels that way. Are you with me? Have any of you ever experienced that? No, sometimes we go into this experience because we've been idiots. You know, you, we've just been idiots. We've, we've neglected God. And we thought we could just kind of coast for a while. Or we've even been more than idiots. We've been sinners. And it's really time for us to repent because we're experiencing some of the fruit of our idiosity in sin. But other times, I, I look back, I don't think I've done anything. I don't know what I've done. I, I just was walking, and suddenly a circumstance happens. A friend that you love decides they're not your friend anymore. Uh, you know, something falls apart relationally, or maybe it's a disease that hits you right out of nowhere. And we call it the dark night of the soul. We call it in this psalm, it's the desert. What do you do when you're in the desert? And that's where we find David. 
He's in the desert. I remember the first time this happened to me. I was six months old in the Lord, and it was the Jesus movement. It was revival. People were on fire. I love the fact that it's packed here today. I just I love that, because that was my roots. Uh, we, we had to get to church an hour early to get a seat. Can you imagine? And there was a line out the door to get into church, and we went to church four times a week. We couldn't get enough. Uh, and... Beyond that, uh, you know, there, there were just people getting saved, people getting healed, thousands being baptized in, in Corona Del Mar and the pictures of that on Tom, Time Magazine. It was an amazing time. So that was what I thought, oh, this is what it's like. Just, And then six months into my walk with Christ, dry as the Mojave Desert, I'd look at the Bible and it feels like I'm reading the Britannica encyclopedia. You know, like, is there any life in this thing? And, and I would pray, and there was, there, it might, felt like my prayers were bouncing off the ceiling. Uh, it's it just, and I thought, what did I do? I actually thought I had committed the unpardonable sin. I thought, I must have done it, whatever that was. I must have done it. It's all over for me. So I went to a friend of mine. His name was Ken Gullickson. And, um, and I said, Ken, what happened? He said, I'll tell you what happened. You're finally growing up. You're a little boy that's putting on long pants. And it's time to decide whether God is still God in the darkness. Where what he showed you in the light is still true in the darkness. So I was in bold. I said, oh, I'm growing up. <laughs> and will I still read my Bible? Will I still pray? Will I still be with other believers? Will I still share my faith when there's no feelings in the dry space? So it's a great thing. It's, it's a hard thing, but we're in good company. If you go through the Bible and see all of the people that made crucial decisions in the desert, in the wilderness, Hagar met the angel of the Lord in the desert. Moses met God, Mount Sinai, in the desert. The list goes on on Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. The list goes on and on and on. And David penned here in Psalm 63, Psalm 27, Psalm 42 are all fabulous Himalayan psalms that speak to us out of the desert. So let's take a moment to pray, and we're going to dive in. Lord, thank you for your great word, your holy word. It is our canon. It is our, uh, our compass that tells us where true north is. And now speak to not only our minds, but our hearts, and change us in the process. In Jesus' name. Amen. So this great psalm was actually uh, the, the Archbishop of Constantinople in the third century, uh, actually fourth century, like 380 AD. He asked all of his pastors to memorize this psalm and sing it every day. Isn't that a cool thing to know that, that we have this rich heritage as Christians? So here it is. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. 
I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. He said, he's remembering what it was like, kind of like me back in the Jesus movement. I remember those good old days when your Shekinah glory was shining in the temple. Because of your love, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied in the richest of food. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the night watches. 161 times in the Old Testament, we're commanded to remember. Anybody have spiritual dementia? Remember, remember, because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Picture a little child clinging to its parents' hands. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. He's talking about this issue is going to be resolved. It's not going to go on forever. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword, become food for the jackals, but the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. So it's great to discover our spiritual thirst in the desert. This is what happens in the desert. It's going to happen to you sometime in your walk, multiple times. Call it darkness, call it testing, call it temptation. Call it whatever you will, abandonment. It's that thing that causes our thirst for God to arise. There's nothing else out there. In the desert, it's bleak. There's nothing there. So now what you've always needed begins to shine forth, which is God's love. Listen to David's words again. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The heading of this, and scholars debate this, but most agree that the headings in the Psalms are not necessarily inspired. At some point they, they were added, but very early on. So in, in all of the ancient um, manuscripts, it's there. And it's, it's the best guess of a person to say, this is where this psalm was written. This is when this happened. And so this is a psalm of David, and he was in the desert of Judah. Now, I brought up from my archives a picture I took of the desert of Judah. Now, you'll see in the, in the light-colored area, light brown, this is the desert. In the center, which you can't see, uh, obviously, I'm not a great photographer. Uh, this shadow is an old, ancient monastery. The monasteries in, in, that are spread out throughout the Roman Empire, but particularly in the Middle East and Greece, uh, were started in the late 3rd century, all throughout the 4th century, uh, by what were called the Desert Fathers. And since we're talking about the desert, it's kind of an interesting idea. The Desert Fathers moved to the desert to have a desert 
experience. The reason, it sounds ludicrous to us. I mean, who does that? I look, would you purposely look for a bad house? Would you purposely look for a bad car? Purposely look for worn out shoes? No, so they decided we've got, we've got to make it tough for ourselves. Here's why. For 300 years, they were persecuted by the Roman Empire. Uh, persecution was a way of life. They were uh, a man on the run. They were homeless, moving around, dodging persecution to get the gospel out. And that was a way of life. And that was their ongoing desert experience for 300 years. The Roman Empire provided, figuratively speaking, the desert, the darkness. And then suddenly, Constantine becomes a Christian. He legalizes Christianity. Uh, and now what? We have, there's no more persecution. How do we live? It'd be like you say, how do we play football without linebackers coming at us? We need bigger, bigger linebackers in order to feel like we're, we're really playing football. And so they moved to the desert. They started this way of life, which was an acidic way of life, doing, saying we're going to eat minimally, we're going to drink minimally, we're going to give our lives to prayer and fasting and seeking God. And this was one of the places they chose, right smack dab in the middle of the desert. Now, if you look at the desert, you can see uh, there's nothing there. When I go there and I see flocks eating and a shepherd, there's always a shepherd out there, you know, I think, my lands, what are they eating? They have found a way to make rocks nutritious. <laughs> There's nothing there. It is bleak. But great things have happened there, including your Lord and Savior. For 40 days he was there, and he came out of the desert under the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it's a testing time. It's asking the question, what do you really believe about God? Oh, you believed God was wonderful at the wedding. You believed God was wonderful down at the beach. You believed God was wonderful when you had this feast. But now do you believe when it's hard that God is still the wonderful God? And so you see, it's a testing of your faith. Do you really believe what you say you believe? So in David's time, it says at the end of the psalm that he's a king at this time in verse 11. So this isn't when he was a shepherd. This isn't when he was a commander. It's not when he was fleeing from Saul. This is probably when he was fleeing from Absalom. A coup had happened. His own son was leading the coup, which you can imagine that kind of betrayal and David now has fled from Jerusalem. He's out in the Judean wilderness on his way to cross the river Jordan. And there he pens this psalm. So I want you to see just in verse 1, four things that stood out for me. And then we'll move on in the psalm. We'll probably only get down to verse 5. So if, relax. We're not going to be here all day. <laughs> um, he starts out pledging his allegiance to God. He says, God, you are my God. Now, that may, me, 
appears small to you, but the, the personal pronoun, mine, he's actually deciding something there. You know, when we celebrate the 4th of July and we ask, am I going to pledge allegiance to this flag again? You know, there's all kinds of debate going on. If, if, if we've been a bad country, then we can't pledge allegiance and so forth and so on. But what you need to know about me is I'm a very patriotic person, though I'm very ashamed of some of the dark pages of our history and especially slavery. But what I'm, what I'm pledging my allegiance to is, is the greatness of the idea of America. And, and, and even though we haven't been the greatest, I'm pledging my allegiance to that. Now take that idea and say, I'm pledging my allegiance to God. I live in a broken world where good things happen to bad people. I go through the desert. But what do I really think about God? He's my God. He's not just a God. He's not their God. He's not the God. I'm redeciding what I decided when I decided to follow Jesus. I love that song, I have decided. It's such an allegiance song that, you know, when push comes to shove, I'm in. The second thing I want you to see is his diligence. He says, earnestly, I seek you. I think that might be an onomatopoeia. I'd never thought about that before, but earnestly. Does, that sounds earnest, doesn't it? <laughs> Don't think about that too much. <laughs> the word earnest, uh, diligent in the Hebrew, is actually the word mourning, uh, M-O-R, not M-O-U-R. Uh, the idea that what's most important to you, you will do in order of priority. So the first thing you do in the day, you do the most important thing, because you might not get to it. And so what is that? David says, it's seeking you. I'm going to seek you earnestly. The first thing, more important than any other thing, I'm going to seek you. And he makes prayer this diligent seeking thing. I think there's a couple of different aspects that we need to think about when we think of praying. One is the wonderful, uh, spontaneous, serendipitous moments of prayer where you find yourself in the moment. You say, oh, God, help me here. Oh, God, give me an idea. God, what do I do about that? These moments where we toss a prayer up, right? You can do that. That's so wonderful. But oftentimes, that becomes only our prayer. We just... Whenever we think about them, we pray. But there are moments of earnestness where we make prayer a priority and decide. And the desert will do that to you, by the way. In the desert, you don't say, well, if I feel like it, maybe I'll pray. It's like, ah, I'm in the desert. It's hot as blazes, and there's nothing to do, and I don't know what to do. And, and you become a person of prayer. Well, when we go through crises in our lives, it drives us to what we should have been doing all along, right? Prayer. Some wonderful friends came over to our house yesterday and they brought us boysenberry pie. If you're new here, you'll have to learn that I love dessert. And uh, actually all food. And uh, so when someone shows up at your dorm with boysenberry pie, 
There's two things that come to me, my mind. One is, thank you very much. And the second is, where is the French vanilla ice cream? <laughs> so we invited him in, and we sat and we visited for a while. And, uh, and I asked uh, the gal, I'm not going to reveal their names because you're going to ask them to bring you some pie. <laughs> uh, your, your, your ancestors are from Sweden. And she said, oh, yeah, 100% Swedish. And I said, uh, so my sons were just performing the other night in Sweden on their way to Norway. What, what part of Sweden? Because they may have been in that area. And she told me this wonderful story about the revival that hit Sweden in the late 19th century. And people were just on fire. I already knew this because Jan's half Swedish. And, and I already knew that uh, her great-great-great-grandmother would travel in the night with no streetlights on a pathway to get to church because she was just on fire and God was working in this way. So, but our friends told us the story of this woman in the midst of the revival that was praying for her alcoholic husband. And uh, she did something that I would describe as earnest. She would pick up a stone from her yard and pray for her husband as she carried the stone up a hill. And she would leave the stone at the top of the hill. If you're from uh, Korea, you or your ancestors are, you know about Prayer Mountain. Same idea. Prayer Mountain changed uh, South Korea, the power of prayer, people going up into the mountain. So she goes up into the mountain, in, uh, excuse me, just on this hill. She deposits the stone. She does that. Every day. That's earnest prayer. It's diligent, priority prayer. And the stones begin to pile up. I don't know how high. I'm imagining two or three feet high. And they're still there to this day, did you know? But get this. Her husband converts and becomes a Christian. And becomes a radical Christian that's bringing many, many people to the Lord because of his being set free from an addiction and now following Jesus. The power of earnest prayer, but oftentimes it doesn't happen until we're in the desert. The third thing is finding and admitting our deep thirst. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's what happens in the desert. I'll talk about that in just a moment more as we go on. But then fourthly, God wants, uh, David wants God holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Notice he includes his body. Uh, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land. It's, it's possible for us to connect all of us in our prayer. You know, sometimes it's deciding, I'm getting on my knees. Sometimes it's deciding, I'm standing up. Uh, some, maybe some of you would say, I'm lifting up my hands. I have to tell you, the first time I saw someone lift up their hands, I had no idea what they were doing. I actually remember the moment. I was at the Shrine Auditorium in L.A. Someone had told me about a, a preacher woman named Catherine Kuhlman. 
And I'd been a Christian two weeks, and, and I got into my VW bus, and there was this guy, Lonnie Frisbee, and some other people that are all in the back of my VW bus, and they're having this kind of Jesus meeting in the back, sitting around Indian style on the carpet. And I'm driving up to LA, and we get there, and I notice someone in the choir is, uh, while they're singing, their hands go up like this. And I kind of zero in on that. I think, whoa, I have no idea. What is that? Is that helium fingers? And then I was looking to see if there were some strings on her hand like a marionette. <laughs> I had no category that it meant something. But later on, as we'll read this morning, David says, because of God's great love, I will lift up my hands unto your name. That he actually includes his body. That's very foreign for uh, Western European Americans. Uh, that that we, we come from the land of the frozen chosen, you know, <laughs> that, you know, you're lucky to move your lips and sing, you know, because that's just, it's just not, but if, if you're from uh, Italy, if you're from Middle East, or if you're from south of the equator, it's just like your body is connected to you. And David includes his body in worship, I love, by the way, to lift my hands now. I feel like one of my grandkids saying, Papa, pick me up. I surrender. I give up. You're everything. And if I'm doing that in my mind or heart, why not? With my, with my body as well. So he wholly wants God Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. It's not on the screen. I just added this this morning. I had this great time on the beach, and I said, oh, I should have, could have said that Saturday night, but I didn't. Pain insists upon being attended to. When you're in pain in the desert, it's insisting you attend to it. So he concludes, God whispers to us in our pleasures. Like, isn't that cool? Calamari, yeah, very cool. Thank you, God. God speaks to us in our consciousness, consciousness, uh, you know, in our conscience rather, and that's just. No, I, I, I wouldn't do that, and that, that conscience thing. But He shouts in our pain. It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Whoa. One of the painful desert stories that impacted me as a young Christian was someone who was my peer, although I didn't know her at the time, was uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. And uh, at the time, we just knew her as Johnny Erickson. And what impacted me is that she was this young, vibrant girl great athlete, riding horses, great tennis player who dove into the Chesapeake Bay uh, 
and found one spot that wasn't deep and broke between the five and four and uh, became paralyzed from the shoulder down and uh, the rest of her life. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's a desert. What do you do? I mean, it's not worthy of the discussion, did God or why would God, or that's not the discussion you want to have. It's where you live in a broken world, and this is, uh, the discussion is, now what? Pain is shouting. And what she did with her life and what she's done with her life shouts so loud to the world with all of her books and her paintings that she's painted with a brush in her mouth. It shouts to the world so loud and clear. And I think that's a picture of what God has for all of us is we we come to the desert and we say, now what? What do we do now? So what I'd like to do now is move transition from the desert back to, to Carlsbad, North Coastal County here, and say, how do we drink of God in the daily life that we live in here and now? Are you with me? So here's the point. Spiritual thirst exists outside of the desert too. Did you know? Spiritual thirst exists outside the desert, not just in the desert. The desert didn't create the thirst It only makes us aware of it. Do you know you're thirsty now? And you say to me, now that you mention it, Mark, I am really thirsty. We're thirsty all the time. Whether you drink six or eight glasses a day, I don't care, but you're thirsty all the time. The reason you don't know that you're thirsty is you're carrying around a water bottle, as I see. You know, we're just, we have water available so we don't think about the fact that we're always thirsty you die without water so we always need it we only became aware of it in the desert and this thirst is your longing for God that has always existed you only personally just discovered it our longing is hardwired and even some behavioral cognitive science is delving into this as we study the brain that it seems worldwide there's something about us that is hardwired for the idea of God. Isn't that amazing? Now, some would say, proves that there is no God. It's in your brain. It's all in your mind. But others of us would argue just the opposite. No wonder there's hundreds of religions and expressions because we all want to, we want meaning We want justice and truth, these great ideas that come from God, and we want love, and we're hardwired to thirst for this. Listen to the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. So everyone has the hunger for God, but only those that become aware of it, become the blessed because you will be filled. Jesus in John four thirteen. everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him 
shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, like a sustainable forever well rising up within them. In chapter 7, in Jerusalem, on the last day of the festival, the feast, Jesus stands up and says, let everyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. You got to be God if you're going to say something like, no, what guru would say that? It's just, I mean, that is the most outlandish thing to say. If you cannot produce that water, you better not promise it, over promise and under deliver. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water, sustainable source will flow from your innermost being. So I don't want to get intellectual on you, but can I just bump up against that for a moment? A lot of us are always worried about defending God. What about science? What about modern beliefs with modern culture? Well, who wrote the Bible? All these things that people love to throw out. And then, by the way, there's answers to all of this, but one of the greatest arguments for the existence of God is the longing. It's not an idea. It's, it's, it's in us. It's, inescap- it's an inescapable question that we have to either press down and say, there is no God. Repeat after me. There is no God. There is no God. Or I have to allow it to channel out to other things. I'm not going to believe in God, but I'm going to be- power into success. I'm not going to believe in God, but I'm going to power into substance abuse. I'm not going to believe in God, but I'm going to give myself to the addiction of being loved by other people. I'm not going to believe in God, but I'm going to believe in the power of my position. But we, so we make these other things gods, but what's driving it is my longing, my dissatisfaction. Never thought I'd be quoting Mick Jaggers and the Rolling Stones, you know, for heaven's sakes. But I can't get no satisfaction, <laughs> though I try, and I try. And I think that's, that's the line of our century. We're still trying. So listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You think? It's reasonable. It's logical. Listen to Augustine. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. So the beauty of thirst, we can not only thirst in the desert, but we can learn to drink regularly in everyday life. Now, if we don't, here's the warning from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, it's free. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine, milk, without money, without cost. You see this great image of a feast in the desert, God providing it. But notice what it says in verse 2. 
Why spend money on what is not bread? In other words, you think it's bread, it's going to provide sustenance. It doesn't. And your labor, why do you strive for what does not satisfy? It's not going to quench your thirst, but you're going to do it again. You're going to do it again. You're going to do it again. It's called insanity. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the riches of fare. So my point here is there are enemies. There is no neutral. You cannot decide, well, that guy had a lot of hot air. I'm just going to go be me and live in the neutral zone. No God, no nothing. I'm just, you're going, because of this inner motor running, longing, you're going to satisfy yourself. But the question is, try to, but the question is, are you satisfied? Well, I could be happier if I had a bigger home. I could be happier if I had a nicer car. I could be happier if, and it just goes on and on and on. So now I want to read you the quote that all history has pointed back to for you to understand that there is a God-shaped void in you. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard a preacher say, there's a God-shaped void in every person? You know? Do you know where that comes from? Blaise Pascal, the most brilliant mind of his time, and everyone was shocked when this scientific mind became a Christian, a devout Christian. And he says this, what else does this craving, this helplessness proclaim? It's a great question. But that there was once in man a true happiness. We once had something that we realize we're homesick for, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. I remember Billy Graham quoting this section, the print and the trace, that there's this inkling left inside of us that my son said, you were meant to live for so much more. Have you lost yourself? So he goes on to say, this he tries, speaking of you and me, in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite immutable object. In other words, God himself. The, the abyss, the void is so big inside of you. Nothing in this world can satisfy but God himself. Van Gogh, who was also the, the, the Dutch uh, postmodernist um, impressionist, he, he uh, has an interesting quote as well, but don't read it right now. I'll give that to you to take home and read. So what's to keep you, my friends? What's to keep you from drinking? What's to keep you from being thirsty, my friend? You didn't hear that from the pulpit, did you? <laughs> What's to keep you? I guess me. I guess I'm the problem. I'm either too easily satisfied or 
I'm just too distracted with what Richard Foster called the muchness and the manyness of life. By the way, Carl Jung, who was not a believer, but he wrote some good things and others not so great things, but uh, he wrote this. He said, hurry is not of the devil. It is the devil. You know, the, the life we now live, where are you going to drink? I mean, I got to go here. I got to do this. I got to check that social media and that one and that one and that one because there are so many. I've got to go here. I've got to shop online. I've got to go here. I've gotta, and now I've got to do the bills and I got to make sure that the ones that I meant to be automatically paid are still automatically paying and I need to do this and I need to do this. I don't want to watch the Padres beat the Dodgers tonight. <laughs> And so we're thirsty. Jesus had this conversation with the woman at the well. You know the story. She comes out in the middle of the day. It's kind of deserty if you've been to Samaria. It's hot, middle of the day. And she finds this guy sitting on the edge of the well. It's Jacob's well. Jacob dug this a thousand years ago, more than that, 1,400 years before Jesus. And there's whom we find to be Jesus sitting on the well. Surprise! <laughs> and Jesus initiates the conversation. Would you please give me a drink? And she responds with a racial awareness and says, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, we don't have any dealings, so why are you asking me? Why are you even talking to me? And Jesus says, woman, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would have asked me for a drink. And I would have given you living water. Sir, the well is deep and you have nothing to draw with. And are you greater than Jacob who dug this well? Woman, everyone who drinks from this water will thirst again. I think that we should have this <laughs> on everything. Go buy your new car, but just put in the license plate, I will thirst again. <laughs> Go buy your new car and put over the mantle, I will thirst again. Whatever you think is gonna fulfill you, it ain't, it won't, it can't. Because it's not God. Enjoy things, but enjoy them as they just are, not what they could be, and build your life around them. So this is the point. She says, okay, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming out here and drawing water every day. I want the living water that will, I'll never thirst again. And he says, go get your husband. Bingo. The cork that's blocking up the water that can't flow because go get your husband. The sore spot in your life, the reason why she's out in the middle of the day getting water, she says, as a deflection. We're good at that. We use our brain to deflect anytime we can. Sir, I have no husband. Whew. 
Jesus says, you have rightly spoken. You've had five husbands and the one that you're living with now, you're not married to. (laughs) She deflects against. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. You must have some kind of special gifts, but uh, uh, let me talk about religion. And you guys say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. We think we're supposed to worship in Mount Gerizim. And Jesus says, eh, 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 eh. not buying it. The time is coming and now is that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. That time has now come. And she says, I know that when the Messiah comes, this will all be settled. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. <laughs> but you see, there was something blocking she, she had this insatiable desire to be satisfied with men, that maybe a man, whether, whether it was sexual or it was just more in keeping with the culture of the time of just having a roof over her head and someone who's an authority over her as, as it was a man's world, whatever the reason, it, it can't play the role that God can. And that day she is set free. And she begins to drink. And I bet, and drink, and drink, and drink. So if we drink of this water, what will happen? I'm going to fast forward this message down to the next section that says our deep longing is for God's love. This verse 3 has been with me my whole life. It's such a radical pronouncement. Because your love is better than life. And you might add itself. Now who says that? Your love is better than living. I mean, unless you're, you're listening to some romantic song out of Hollywood... If you ever left me, I would die. The, the world would not, the sun would not rise. The moon would not rise. I mean, you know, that was those kind of sappy songs. But David, which is really a statement of enmeshment and codependency, not love. But this is saying that if I die in the desert, this, this desert experience has revealed the fact that nothing can really satisfy but you and your love. And your love, which will last eternity, is better than life. Wow, what do you do to this person? This person is free. This person is dangerously free to live life because they found a fountain of love that nothing and no one can take away from you. I'm thinking of of Romans chapter 8, where it says that nothing can separate you from the love of God. And Paul lists these great dichotomies. Can, can death, can life, and height, and depth, can all these... No, he says nothing can separate you from God's persistent, tenacious love for you. Folks, if you catch nothing this morning, catch this. God loves you more than you know. And if you knew how much he loved you, you would drink and drink 
and drink and drink and drink of his love. And I suggest that that's what you'll be doing in heaven. So why not now? So I have four pointers for you, four take-homes for, to keep you drinking. You're going to go home and say, what did the preacher preach on? He said, we need to keep drinking. <laughs> Just remember you say, you know, it's, it's the love of God. Qualify it, please. So number one, see if I can do it from memory. Number one, find a time to drink. Find a time. Be earnest in your drinking. Find a time. If you say, ah, sorry, Mark, I am way too busy for God. And I just say, I know, I know, I know. But you must, you must eat a meal. You must drive a car. You must go to the toilet. You must do something that separates you and, and okay, this is my time and I'm gonna get alone and I'm gonna pray and I'm just going to catch a, set, a segment of God's word. And I'm going to drink. But the point is, it's not just intellectual. It's your alone time with God. Talk to him. It'll change your life. Did you just say that, Mark? I believe you did. <laughs> I thought that was profound. Say it again. Talking to God will change your life. I do it out loud. Because it just feels too weird to think thoughts back and forth. Uh, I, I, I just get a place where I can whisper and hear my voice in my ears. Number two, weed your garden. What do I mean by that? There are things that are crying out to you saying, if you drink me, you'll be happy. Drink me, drink me, drink me. Buy this, do this, do this. And you got to weed your garden. Don't let those plants grow. Keep them in their place so the real plant is growing. Uh, thirdly, find some good friends who are going to push you. Don't just find friends that bring you down. When I used to play tennis, which was a long time ago, I tried to find tennis partners who would push my game. If I was just like... A, I'll play you, I can whip you again. I'll play you, I can whip you again. It's not going to improve your game. Don't get around friends that say, yeah, I'll help you sin. Uh, find some friends that are going to say, I'm going to push you. Are, you. are you having your time with God? What, you know, are you, are you, and here's the fourth thing. Spread the love. Share the water. You know, don't just bottle it up. You know, don't leave here this morning. Just don't hug me. I got to, this thing's got to last the rest of this week. And I, I don't want it to splash out anywhere. It's, it's meant to splash out. 
share the water. Because when you share the water, it makes people thirsty. And they think, whoa, what a loving person. What a kind act. What a, what a gracious thing to say. All of that is living water. And, and it makes them thirsty as well. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out. This morning we're closing with communion. And uh, as we have this brief time, uh, I just want you to realize that this is the consummate desert. This is Jesus. All alone, this is Jesus feeling abandoned. This is Jesus dying for your sins and my sins so that we would be forgiven and have new life. It was his desert experience. Your homework is Psalm 22. Go home and read Psalm 22 and you realize it was Jesus' desert experience. And aren't you glad he went through the desert? Father, be with us in this time of celebrating your death for us. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for the crucifixion and the resurrection that we might have new life. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.